Um, if you will, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> Acts chapter 5. We are making our way through this book, and uh, today we're going to begin chapter 5 together. And um, I don't know, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Let's learn a little bit about our God, okay? Um, I grew up with, and if you see the worship guide or this morning or maybe the, the slide behind me on the screen, the healthy fear, does that bring anybody in your life to mind maybe? Most of you may be thinking of parents, if they may even be with the Lord, and you may be thinking of your parents. Uh, I grew up with a healthy fear of my parents, and they weren't mean, they weren't ugly. In fact, they were pretty precious people and still are precious people. People grew up thinking my mom would never do anything to raise her voice to anybody, and I was like, you don't know her very well, you know. I grew up with a healthy fear of my parents. You know, they would say things like, I brought you into this world, you know, the rest of it, right? Yeah, those phrases tend to breed that aspect of healthy fear. Yeah, I can't really look back in, on a day that uh, healthy fear began, um, but I can remember an earliest standout refresher that they gave me. There was a time, we lived in a house that sort of had two living rooms, like a den and a living room, you know what I'm talking about? And usually there's like a door that connects those two. Well, we had two doors that connected them, and it was like you could do a NASCAR race around those two, because they're two doors, right? Uh, we have that in our house sort of right now, and these, the, our kids literally have these little cars, and they will go, I mean, it's pretty, if, you, if you're at our house and see it, it's, it's a real spectacle. Shepard's like 18 months, 19 months old, and he, he can get around faster on that than I can on foot, um, than he can on foot, anyway. So anyway, I was, I was uh, in trouble one, one day, which that happened often when I was a kid. I think I was six, and my mom started to do that thing. We lived on, in a house that was kind of sat on concrete blocks. that had, had a, a crawl space. And so the floor just kind of was hollow. You know what I'm talking about? And if somebody stomps on that floor, it's like you can feel it in the entire house. And I felt her footsteps coming toward me because I had done something I wasn't. And I don't even remember what that thing was, by the way. But again, it's hard to keep track of all the things. I, I remember feeling her footsteps coming and I turned around and looked and I was like, oh shoot. And I made a run for it. And I ran around the house. When I say I ran around the house, I mean I did the NASCAR circuit. You know what I'm saying? And she was chasing after me while I was running around the house. And she would do the thing where we as adults do, where we double back and we're like, you're going to run that way. You're not going to see me. I'm going to come back. She would do that, but I was smarter than her. I knew that to be true, right? So I would double back and run away from her. And I realized eventually that she was going to catch me uh, after five or six circuits around the house. And I remember I jumped into the recliner and I see her coming. actually jumped upside down. I, my head went down first and my legs flipped up, and I could see her upside down running toward me. And I was like, this is how I die. <laughs> because I had a healthy fear of my parents. Not healthy enough, apparently. But I remember that, that thing just sort of being planted within me. You know, God gave us the parent-child relationship for a reason. Isn't that in our DNA? You know, I, don't, I didn't even have to explain what I meant. When I said that phrase, healthy fear, many of you immediately thought of your parents or maybe your grandparents or someone that had a fatherly or motherly figure in your life. And the reason why is because healthy fear is something that God placed within us. It's in our DNA. It's good for a child, isn't it? Isn't healthy fear good for a child to, to know what discipline is and that that correction is not harmful? Even if it's painful, it's not harmful, right? Because it is for their good. And I'm telling you today that God puts within us a healthy fear of him. He wants us to have a healthy fear of his authority as our father. And let me just say, my parents were not abusive tyrants. They were loving disciplinarians. Because healthy fear is good for me, not bad for me. My dad asked me, I got to spend some time with him this weekend, he asked me a couple days ago what I remembered about growing up in their house, and I told him it wasn't the fun house. Uh, and he was like, well, thanks a lot. I said, no, no, no. I realize now that it, it needed not to be the fun house, because the fun house would have been for my bad, not for my good. 
In the moment, though, I didn't believe that, right? I wanted to go to the fun house. As the reality is, the fun house isn't what's best for us. And now we do have fun in our house. We want our kids to have fun in our house. But we also, and I think you see my point, we want our kids to live in a home with boundaries. No rules, no boundaries, living in the fun house versus order and guidance and discipline and guardrails. It produces healthy fear, right? Healthy fear, not unhealthy, but healthy fear of our father. And our healthy fear of our father is the path of true freedom, not restriction. And so today, we're going to talk about that. We're going to look at a passage that breeds healthy fear. And it did then, and I think it does now. So let's look at it together. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It says this. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. This is Sapphira. Not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Last week we talked about radical generosity. This is what we saw at the end of chapter 4, that the early church, this is what the book of Acts is, it's the story of the early church, the first story of the church. And it was radical generosity that we saw in the church. The church had swelled from, five, from, from just a, a dozen people, and really 11 people, then a dozen, and then uh, a few handfuls. And then suddenly there's 5,000 to 10,000 of them, many of them still in Jerusalem. The first members of the church were from Galilee. The second larger group were from as far away as Rome and Ma- uh, Macedonia and all over the, the Greek-speaking world. Many did not expect to stay long in Jerusalem. Again, they're out-of-towners. And it seems that this radical generosity is prompted by those who live in Jerusalem, probably sharing their possessions and even selling their land and their homes to support those who are struggling. Because again, you have people there that don't live there, and they're sticking around because they're part of this new movement called the church. Huge displays of radical giving. And then at the end of the passage we looked at last week, one guy is singled out. His name is Barnabas. Barnabas is singled out. By the way, it's telling here that that is generosity on his part. It's telling that it's voluntary and not obligatory. They're not saying everybody had to sell their things. We looked at this last week, but I'll touch on it real quick. The reason why I say that is that he singled out for his generosity. Generosity is not generosity if it is forced upon someone, right? I don't pay my taxes because I'm a generous person. (laughs) I hope to think I'm generous from time to time, but taxes aren't generosity. You know why? Because they're forced on us. And that's not generosity. Generosity by its very nature. And the reason they're singling out Barnabas is because it was a voluntary act, not sticking a gun in his face and saying, you better do it or else. Barnabas, 
who honored God with his heart, honored God with his possessions, is then contrasted in the passage that we're looking at today. He's contrasted with a married couple who selfishly wanted to be, listen, this is important, to be perceived by the people as having given much while they kept it to themselves. Ananias and Sapphira seem to want the praise for the charity without the actual cost of that charity, of the offering. Rather than simply admitting that they were giving part of the proceeds, they put on a show of fake godliness, and this is where Peter is calling them out. The thing is, they could deceive men, but they could not deceive God, and they would pay for it. The result of that is what we're really looking at today as the main theme here. The result of that is a lesson for the church then and now to learn, and that is that God means business, and that we need to exercise a healthy fear of our Father. Because, guys, the lie is that the path of happiness is paved with selfish living. If I can just have more money and more things and more status and more reputation, then I'll be happy. We even have something called the pursuit of happiness, and it's based on having all of those things. If I can just have, then I'll find fulfillment. I'll find happiness. But, guys, that's the lie. That's the lie. The truth is that the path of happiness is paved with putting not self above everything, but putting God above everything. Many lives have been proven vain and empty because number one was put up here when God was relegated to a thing of the distant back of the mind. So today, as we're talking about healthy fear, I want to leave you with a couple of things when it comes to fearing our Father. Number one, if you're taking notes, just a couple things. Number one is that we should trust the Father's heart. We should trust our Father's heart. Trusting our Father's heart. I'm going to talk about my family a good bit today, sticking with the fatherly theme. And, and my wife is Brooke. If you've not had a chance to meet her, uh, she is serving in the nursery right now. And uh, I'm grateful for her service. And many of you that serve in that way, by the way. Um, there are times that if you asked our kids, and we have four kids, seven, five, three, and one. Uh, if you asked our kids, many times you'd think that we never wanted them to have fun or eat anything tasty or just generally enjoy their lives. They would, they would tell you that, oh, man, it's just a prison in there, right? Guys, but kids have a limited understanding, right? Kids have limited knowledge of the world around them. They need to trust not only that we know far more than they do, but also that we love them more than they could ever imagine that we love them. That's just part of parenting, right? The kids think they know everything, but they really need a lesson in humility to understand that they know very, very little, but their parents know very much. You should hear maybe an analogy that I'm making here, a parallel, is that we're the kids in this situation. And our Father is infinitely wiser, infinitely more knowledgeable, infinitely more loving and powerful even than we give him credit for. And yet we grow impatient and we think, why is this happening in my life? Do we trust the Father's heart? I want us to learn this this morning. Look at verses 1 and 2. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, listen to the secrecy here. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back, that's, in the, that's the word for embezzle. It's, it's, it's tr translated pilfering in Titus. So there's a, there's a dishonesty happening here. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Guys, their sin was not a matter of their possessions. It wasn't a matter of the money. It was a matter of their deception, okay? We're going to see this in verses 3, 4, and part of verse 5. No, notice Peter's words in verse 4 especially. Look at this. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Notice the heart there. To lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Now listen to this verse, the voluntary nature here. 
It wasn't about the money or the possessions. It's about the, the heart here, the deception. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? It was yours to do with what you wanted, he's saying. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. It says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. The reason I emphasize verse 4 about it was yours before you sold it. It was yours after you sold it. It was yours to do with what you wanted to do with it. And I said this last week, and just real quickly, I'll touch on this again if you weren't here. This is not early Christian communism. This isn't forced, you know, socialism where everybody's going to be equal and we're going to tell you what to do with your things. That's not happening here. Peter is very clear. It was yours. You do with it what you wanted to do with it. The problem, though, is that while they did with it what they wanted to do with it, they led people to believe a lie. This is the sin, the deception, is that Peter is clear to emphasize that the one they really lied to while it was man, the one they really lied to was the Spirit of God, who they cannot trick. This, uh, this week, we were getting the kids out the door for school, uh, so it's, you know, a little before 7 a.m., and um, their bus comes and picks them up at like 6.40, 6.45, and Shiloh's our seven-year-old, and she was making herself, can I just pause for a second how great it is that she can make herself anything? You know what I'm saying? We're getting there. Some of you have told me it gets easier. I'm starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel a little bit. She was making herself some chocolate milk, which I'll be honest, it's a disaster a lot of the time, but at least she tries, right? Uh, well, she tends to overfill the cup and she wastes and it's, you know, it's a mess a lot of the time. Well, Brooke has, has told her several times about that and tried to, you know, kind of guide her and, and empower her, but also, you know, tell her how to do things the right way. Well, this time she did well. She didn't get too much. It was a, it was a, a good amount, and child, or, and child was about, you know, getting ready to drink it, and, and Brooke just kind of looks over, and she says, thank you so much for listening to me and not getting too much. Thank you for listening to me. Good girl. Thank you for listening to me. And Shiloh kind of pauses, and she loves praise, by the way, loves it. But she pauses, and she goes, actually, I just didn't have time to get more because the bus is about to be here. <laughs> and then she said, it wasn't because I was listening to you. That's what she said. Isn't that great? You just want to be like, thank you for your honesty, I guess, right? The funny thing is that she could have been like, you're welcome. And would have said, pat on your head, well done, right? Because we wouldn't have known. Guys, God's not like that. Like, we, we can't trick him. She could have tricked us. She could have manipulated us and said, thank you for the praise, and I'm actually getting what I want. But that's not what happened. She could have fooled us. You can't fool God. You can't trick God. The reason why is because he's not like that. He knows every intention of our hearts. And we can fool other people. We can never fool God. That's what Peter's getting at here. He's essentially saying, you can deceive us. By the way, Peter wasn't deceived. He knew, how, he knew somehow. But really what he's saying is you cannot deceive God. Because sin is vertical before it is horizontal. Sin is against God before it is against people. And this is what Peter is pointing out to these guys. Look at the last part of verse 5. We see the immediate consequence of this. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. How about that? Great fear came upon all who heard of it. That's the response. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Guys, the healthy fear here was connected to the severe consequences of lying to God. That's what Satan does, right? The Bible says he's the father of all lies. John 8, says, when he lies, the second part of that verse says, when he lies, that is Satan, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
This is what Satan is doing in their hearts. He's been doing this a very long time. He did this in the Garden of Eden. This is his MO. He is a deceiver. He is a liar. Notice it says here in verse 3, Ananias, why is Satan, notice what it says, filled your heart. It's the same language that's used earlier in Acts to say that the Holy Spirit filled them, filled them, filled them, filled them, influenced them, empowered them. He is allowing Satan, not just his ear, but his heart. Why is Satan doing this thing within you? And then right after that, it says uh, in verse 4, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Guys, it's interesting because Satan's preferred battlefield against God's people is not on the body. It's in the heart. It's like earthquakes. You feel an earthquake. You know where an earthquake starts? Before you feel it with the fault lines beneath the surface. It's like a volcanic eruption. You know where a volcanic eruption really begins? Not when you see the lava spouting out. I can't, I've never seen one, but I imagine it looks something like that. Where does it start? Under the surface, in the heart of the earth, in the heart of the mountain. Guys, Satan's war against God's people, against you and me, is not on the surface. It is deep within. It only manifests itself on the outside of us, like withholding possessions, when we've lost the fight on the inside of us. Isn't that true of all sin? Only manifests itself on the outside when we've lost on the battlefield, on the inside, and the heart. Guys, the question for us is when we, what do we do when Satan's lure promises praise from men, promises happiness, promises money, promises success, and Satan's lure promises those things. What do we do when honoring God ensures hurtful consequences? That honoring God ensures a clouded future. While he just sort of quietly says, trust me, it's better this way. Do we trust our father? Do we trust his vision? Do we trust his heart? Charles Spurgeon has an excellent quote that you're, I think you're going to see on the screen behind me. It says, God is too good to be unkind. And he is too wise to be mistaken, to be wrong. And when, he can, when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. I'm going to read that again. I've used this before. God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. That's a lot of us here today can't see the forest for the trees, can't see the path forward. We know that honoring God means it's going to be hard. And yet God just says, just trust me. I'm your dad. You're limited in what you understand, but I love you, and this is better. And it may mean discipline. You know, as a child, my disciplines were always worsened by my own lies my, my discipline was always worsened by my own lies. It happened a lot. My parents tell me it happened a lot. They said from four to six, I told you guys this Wednesday, they said from four to six, I got a spanking pretty much every day. I think I'm better for that, actually. But my lies always worsened the discipline that was already there. My mom would say, Caleb, did you hit your brother? I'm an older brother, two years older, and I was, we, always, we were brothers, you know. Caleb, did you hit your brother? I'd say, no. No, I didn't hit my brother. She's like, I saw you do it. I'd say, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do it. I had a lie, just lie, deception, 
thinking that I could pull one over on someone that knew. Because the thing is, it was bad enough that I would hit him in the first place, but it was so much worse because I deceived or attempted to deceive my parent. Because hurt is a lot harder to overcome, isn't it? It would be hard to be restored from a lie because trust has been broken. And I know this now as a parent. When my kids confess their wrongs, it immediately brightens a pathway to my tenderness and to my embrace. But when they lie, when they self-preserve and think they can manipulate, it only hurts their father and compounds their consequences. I hope you know where I'm going with this. Guys, I have to believe that God has put that in us for a reason. To be not just hurt by the sin, but aren't you hurt? Maybe you're a parent. Aren't you hurt a lot worse by the lie? Because that has become a relational damage causer. Guys, you will sin. And when you sin, do not compound the wrong by doing things like burying it or concealing it or ignoring it or doubling down on it and saying, well, I can't help it. That's just the way I am. That's just the way I feel. It's natural and think I can do that and just sort of make the consequences mild. But honoring God sometimes means it's more severe. Do you trust God's heart? Do you trust the Father's heart? To expose it through admission and confession, to expose the sin that we bury, to give attention to our sin and, and awareness instead of hiding and concealing. Guys, God will honor that because it's worse to lie. It's worse to bury it. It compounds the wrong, compounds the consequences. God has shared his parents' heart with us. And we know that the wrong is one thing, but the lie is another. Because you don't just sin against a holy rule book. You sin against a holy God, your heavenly Father. And listen, please, holy fear of our Father means trusting Him and doing the right thing, even when it's hard, even when it may bring consequences. Do you trust the Father's heart? That's what healthy fear is. Secondly, healthy fear means respecting the boundaries, respecting our Father's boundaries. Are you guys cold? Raise your hand if you're cold. Raise your hand if you're hot. Can we bump the air up like two degrees? I never am cold, like in this room. My hand, I can barely, my, like I'm trying to scroll on my iPad. It's not picking up the heat since, since, you know what I'm saying? It's a little bit nippy in here. Thank you, guys. And you're welcome for those of you that were about to die. I could just see it on your faces. You were having a hard time paying attention. Anyway, shame on you. I'm just kidding. All right. Respecting the Father's boundaries. You know, we, we've raised, as I said, four kids. They all go through the cyclical phases where they revisit the line and see how they, close they can come to the line without crossing it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like, let's just see. Let's just see. Let's just test the water, see how close we can get without crossing the line. Uh, the word for that, biblical word for that, is testing. The biblical word for that is testing. It's putting God to the test. We're going to see this next. That's, that's why maybe somebody in your life, or maybe you now, you find that you're the one saying this. Um, you're on thin ice. You ever heard that before? You're on thin ice. You know what that means? You're pushing it. You're pushing the boundary. You're testing it, and you're about to fall through the ice. This is what happens in our passage next. The Spirit is put to the test. Look at verses 7 through 11. We're going to read the whole thing. After an interval, and by the way, you're going to hear a lot of similarities here. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, Sapphira, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. She's lying, right? 
But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test, don't miss that, to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed, breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear, don't miss that, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So same thing, right? Same thing happens. She lies. She dies. She gets rolled out of there. That's what happened in Ananias. That's what happened to Sapphira. She lies, she dies, and she gets carried out. But the story differs in one key way, and it's easy to miss, and I tried to really single it out. And that is that instead of saying she lied to the Spirit, which is what it was said about Ananias, it says that Peter says that she has tested the Spirit. It's a little bit different. Not lied to the Spirit, but she is testing the Spirit. This is the same language of the same author, by the way, Luke, in Luke 4, 12 and 13, during the temptation of Jesus, when Satan is tempting and trying to lure Jesus, says, Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the what? Test. Don't test him. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6, 16. He goes on in verse 13 of this Luke passage and says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Same, same offender here. Satan, luring, trying to lie, and make Jesus put God to the test. Well, he fails. What does testing mean? Testing is, is conduct that is meant to test God's justice and his patience. It's conduct that is meant to test God's justice and impatience. It's to challenge him, or maybe better said, it is to challenge God to give proof of what he claims. Give proof of what he claims. There's a movie that came out many years ago. I say it's many years ago. Maybe to some of you it feels like it was actually kind of recent. Uh, it's called Finding Nemo. Familiar? About fish, animated movie, Disney Pixar, I think. Uh, anyway, Nemo is a, is a little rebellious kid that gets lost. Kid is a fish. What, what am I talking about? Uh, anyway, let, into the movie. Sorry, but if you haven't seen it, you know, plug. It's been a while, so, you know, your fault. Uh, his dad eventually finds him. They get restored, everything else. But the way that he gets lost is that Nemo is being rebellious against his father. His father puts down a boundary, and he says, uh, don't go and swim away because there's a boat. They call it a butt. It's a boat. It's, it's, it's a kid's movie, man. I'm just telling you because you're going to hear, you know, because I'm about to watch it. We're about to watch a clip. Um, there's a boat, and, and Nemo and his peers are like, oh, I dare you to go touch it. And he's like, I don't know, man. I think my dad wouldn't be cool with that. And then his dad's like, what are you doing? You're, what are you thinking? And then he's like coming down on him really hard. He's like, I put the boundary down. I'm paraphrasing. And then Nemo sort of sees that he's distracted, and then Nemo says, I'm going to go and touch the butt. Sorry, boat. So uh, let's, let's check it out. I told you. Uh, when I thought about pushing the boundaries of the father, I thought about that clip. It tells you a little bit about me, right? By the way, the next scene is very sad. Watching these things as a parent absolutely wreck you. I'll tell you what. Um, but Nemo, he, he knew the boundary, 
right? Uh, he knew the Father's commands. He knew the Father says he is this. Don't you do that? There will be consequences. And yet, he tested if he's really firm on what he says that he is. And you, hopefully you can see the parallel. We know the boundaries. We know the Father's commands, knowing who God says he is. And yet testing is seeing if he's really firm on what he says he is. Does he really see? Does he really care? Does he really hurt? Will he really discipline? Guys, we know the heart of our God. We know the boundaries. That he takes sin seriously. That, he, that the sin that we treat as no big deal, listen, it was a big enough deal that the only good man who'd ever lived would die as if he was the worst man that ever lived. Sin is a big deal. And God cares a lot about it. He's hurt by it. He sees it all. He is grieved by it all. Guys, you know the Father's boundaries. But do you, listen, do you love the one who put the boundaries there enough to respect those boundaries? Obedience is not a matter of, of rule following. Obedience is a matter of love. That's what Jesus said in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because this is not a matter of being a good, good Christian, bad Christian. This is a matter of do you love God? more than you love sin? Do you love God more than you love going up to the boundary and saying, maybe just a little touch? Guys, the fact of the matter is that we view sin far too casually. We see horizontal deception against one another as a heinous offense. <laughs> well, I don't want to lie to that person. That's a really bad thing. And yet we lie to God every day. We see the horizontal offense is so much more severe and heinous than we do the vertical offense. And I think my, my, my best guess is because we see God and we think pre-forgiven exception. I know that I'm forgiven by that guy. And so I'm just going to treat him however I want to. And it's hurtful to the heart of the Father when we just drag him and say, you're a sucker who has a standing offer for forgiveness and that means I'm going to go and live however I want. Do you hear the, the deceit? Do you hear the testing there? You ever have that, and I don't mean to make light of this, because it's a terrible feeling, and it's, but you're going to think it's light. Do you ever text someone when you think you're texting someone else, but you're texting someone else a thing about the person that you're texting about? Are you following me? And you send a message about an individual but you meant to send it to a different individual because that person's name is in your mind. You sent it to that individual and you can't get the words back. You know what I'm talking about? Gossip is the word for that, by the way. Don't you feel sick? It's like, well, I'm just going to die. I'm just going to crawl in my bed. And if I cover up, then no one will ever find me. Because you have this, and I don't mean to make light about that. It, it feels, I'm going to tell you why. It feels like you're going to throw up because you're backbiting was uncovered, and a relationship was damaged. Horizontal relationship. Here's the problem. You see, when we really blow it in a big way that hurts another person, we feel sick. Question then, when was the last time you felt that feeling because you'd sinned against God? When was the last time you felt sick to your stomach because you've offended someone far greater than your buddy? You see what I'm saying? Not because of the earthly consequence, 
but simply because of the offense against someone you love. Why don't we feel that sunken sensation in our hearts when we sin against the greater and more precious relationship? And I think it's very clear. It's because we abuse the gift of grace and therefore the giver of grace and overlook the offense because, well, that's just part of being human and we're forgiven anyway. Guys, that is just not good enough. We're not, we can't be okay with that. Because we love the Father, do we not? Not a rhetorical question. Do we love the Father, church? We do. But man, do we hurt him. Man, do we hurt him. He's a good, good Father. Ever loving. Ever compassionate. And yes, ever forgiving. But listen, we can both, please hear both. We can both be joyfully forgiven while also being deeply broken over our sin. Amen? Can we not? We can be both joyfully forgiven while also deeply broken over our sin. In fact, I would argue that the joy is most profound only after the realization that forgiveness is so needed. You want to have a joyful life? Realize how rotten you are apart from Christ. You want to see the gospel as big as you possibly can? Realize just how desperate you are apart from it. You want to see how wonderful Christ is? Realize who you are without him. And you will love him till the day you die and beyond. These things are not mutually exclusive. We can be joyfully forgiven while also being deeply broken over our sin. The biblical word for that is fear. That's the word for that. Fearing healthy fear of our God. That's our response. When you hear fear, and especially if you didn't, you know, many of you didn't grow up in church. And, and I mean, for me, I grew up in church. And so when I hear fear of God, I'm like, yeah, I know you're supposed to do that. But I, like to the untrained ear, and while, while someone that maybe doesn't have that just sort of dancing around in their minds, like, oh, yeah, that's just what, you, that's what the word says. That's a weird thing to say, right? Fear of God. Fear is associated with, like, it's, it's literally the word phobia. Fear is associated with bad things, not good things. God's a good thing, right? A good person. So why am I fearing does it mean afraid? Well, it's sort of a nuanced thing. I'm going to read a couple of passages of Scripture that I think help a little bit, but then we're going to talk about it a little bit more. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord, again, think of the parental fear here, healthy fear of the Father. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's what it says. Proverbs 14, 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. How about that? Positive connotation, right? The fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. It's this idea that not fearing God is shackling and dangerous, but fearing God is freeing and real living. A New Testament verse, I think, captures this idea well. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The fear of God. And while he is swift in his justice in this passage, is it not true that every person in this room has experienced a patient, patient father? Man, God is patient with us. A quote that I read this week is, says this, In order to develop the fear of the Lord, we must recognize God for who he is. Those who fear the Lord have a continual awareness of him, a deep reverence for him, and a sincere commitment to obey him. Those who fear the Lord have a continual awareness of him, a deep reverence for him, and a sincere commitment to obey him. 
I think that captures it pretty well. There's one thing that's easy to miss in this passage that I think is really cool. I'm a student of the Word, and uh, man, the Bible rocks my world like every time I look at it because I'm like, whoa, I didn't notice that before, and I've read it before. Verse 11, check this out. Verse 11 says, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Think, what are we looking at here? It's the first time we see the word church in Acts. First time we see the word church, it's the gatherings, the word ecclesia. It's the gatherings, the word for church. We see this several times in the New Testament. This is the very first time in the book of Acts. Why is that there? Ecclesia. There's something to be said. This is the, this is the dawn of a new day. The church is born. You know, this is, a, this is a scary passage. You think, what kind of God is that? I mean, a little sin, but a big consequence. But I want you to hear me say something. It's true that he made an example of these two, but God has used a married couple as a warning example before. Long, 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 long time ago in the Garden of Eden. The dawn of a new era. The first era. It begins and quickly is fractured. And there are swift, swift consequences. Guys, this narrative is the beginning of the church, the ecclesia, but it is also reminiscent of the beginning of creation where a little sin of just eating some fruit had big, big, big consequences. Adam and Eve, and this should sound familiar to our passage this morning, they were given possessions from God to enjoy. They, had, they, were, they were tempted by Satan to gratify themselves. Sound like got like Ananias and Sapphira, right? You see in the garden, destruction of peace and unity. This passage we looked at last week talked about the oneness that the church had in, in, in heart and soul, and yet here it is damaged. In the garden, you have God saying, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And here you see the manipulation of a husband and wife that leads to just that. They hide the truth from God as if he cannot see them completely in the garden, and he does. And here they hide this from God, thinking that he does not see them completely and he does. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sin, and they are removed from the garden. And here you see that these bodies are carried out. It's a word that's on purpose. It's to say that they are separated from the rest. Guys, lying to God and putting him to the test is the original sin of garden. And it's the original sin of the church. Putting him to the test. Original sin of mankind. And at this dawn of a new era, the church is born we see just that. And guys, nothing's changed. Satan still wants to deceive and ruin us. He wants you to look at God's boundaries and dismiss them because they are too much or unrealistic or countercultural. And he just doesn't want us to have fun. He doesn't want me to live in the fun house. And we want to dismiss the boundaries and say they're outdated or archaic or whatever it may be. Well, everybody has this thing. Satan wants us to look at God's boundaries and say, come on. What kind of parent is that? It's the original sin. Well, he told you you could do all this, but come on. He, did God really say that that's, you see what I'm saying? And Satan has the same trick up his sleeve that he's always had. So my question to you is, where in your life have you been putting God's spirit to the test? Have you been swimming up to the boundary and just saying, let's just see what happens? Let's just see if you're just a sucker who's going to constantly be forgiving and I can just live however I want. 
Where have you been putting God's spirit to the test? Where has he made himself clear, but you've been living willful ignorance and lying to his spirit? Guys, listen, this is not a pastor heaping on shame and guilt. This is your pastor reminding you that your father is watching, but that he also loves you, that he is often grieved by you, but that, this is the most important part, but that he also longs to restore you and receive you. He's not waiting with an abusive, tyrannical hand. He's waiting with open arms and an embrace for someone that finally says, I surrender, I confess, I'm undone. But to do that, you got to stop lying. you got to stop ignoring. we got to stop running and testing. And here's the good news from that, man. With horizontal relationships, you got to earn it back. Horizontal relationships, like, man, the damage has been done. It's going to be a long time. In fact, you as parents may know this. If, if so, your child has lied to you, it's, like, it's going to take you some time to earn back my trust. The damage has been done. Please hear me say this, church. The good news of the gospel is that you do not have to do, do, do to make up the relational gap that your sin has caused because Jesus has done that. Jesus went in our place and he built a a figurative bridge between man and God, a holy God and sinful man. And Jesus came in our place and restored a broken relationship by bearing the just wages of sin, which is death, that we may bear and receive the gift of salvation in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. But to receive that, to repent, you have to confess, you have to believe, and you have to commit. Today you can do that, whether it be for the first time in salvation or the daily struggle that you and I have against sin as believers in Christ. Guys, we are to exercise healthy fear, not of a tyrant. Please listen. Healthy fear, not of a tyrant, but of a father whose heart you can trust even when you cannot trace his hand. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper now in just a second. I'm going to pray, and, and this is how we're going to respond. This is, this is, the, is this not the perfect response? This is the perfect response. Receiving the body and the blood of Jesus as, as the very reason we can be restored to God, our Father, right? And so we're going to take this as, a, as an opportunity to respond. But as we do that, go ahead and put that slide behind me with these four words. Sometimes, especially if you're, if you're young in the faith and, and are not really sure what you're supposed to do during this time. I'm going to start putting these words on the screen behind me. Because what you're supposed to do while you're receiving these elements, I think are four things, four R's just for ease of of remembrance. Number one is to remember. Remember who you are apart from Christ. Remember who you are because of Christ. Remember that Jesus was beaten mercilessly. He is the lamb. He's the lamb that was slain. We remember his sacrifice. So it says, do this in remembrance of me. That's what Jesus said, right? But we also don't just remember, we reflect. We're reflecting on all the, all the, the damage within us, the sin-stained hearts that we once had, but also that still daily we struggle with our sin. We reflect on the many things that are damaging our fellowship with God. 
not burying them and doubling down on them, but asking that they be revealed and confess them. Thirdly, we renew. Isn't that a good opportunity? God, this is who I am. This is who you've made me to be, and I don't feel that way. God, I want to renew my commitment to you. Use this as an opportunity to renew that. And here's the good news. God is not like us, where it's like, yeah, well, I'll wait and see. I'll wait and see if you're really about it. God hears a willing heart, a contrite heart, and you know what he says? Come to me. Come to me. And he embraces us. And guys, that is cause for rejoicing. So as we take the Lord's Supper together, as we respond, my prayer is that you will not just sit at your seat and look around and be spectating, but instead that you would remember, that you would reflect, that you would renew, and that you would rejoice.